Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Didier Elzinga is the founder and CEO of CultureAm, the world's leading culture analytics platform. They were recently valued at $2 billion and they're a true blue homegrown unicorn who now are operating in 150 plus countries. In 2021, they were also named one of the world's most innovative companies by Fast Company. So they're obviously doing a lot right. Incredibly, they are currently monitoring 6,000 workplaces and 25 million employees. They have a large team of people scientists who analyze this immense data set to find meaningful insights and recommendations. Prior to starting CultureAmp, Didier was the CEO of Rising Sun Pictures, a very successful Hollywood's visual effects company. He freely shares the mentors who influenced his leadership style, including the co-founders of Rising Sun. He freely shares the mentors who influenced his leadership style, including the co-founders of Rising Sun, Scott Farquhar, the co-founder of Atlassian, and his wife, Greta Bradman, who is also a psychologist. Didier believes that caring is one of the hallmarks of great leaders, and he has ample evidence to support this. He's also a huge advocate on the benefits of having a more diverse organization, and he really strives constantly to reduce his unconscious bias. Didier shares freely about how he built a very successful company, and he has many great lessons to share. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to interview Didier Elzinga today. Lovely to have you on the show, Didier. Thanks, Graham. I'm looking forward to being here and you know spending a bit of time talking about things we both care about. <laughs> what does care in the workplace mean to you? It means many things, uh, and I expect we'll probably spend the rest of the podcast kind of pulling that apart. Um, but for me, the core of it is how do the leaders feel about people? What is the role of the people in the organization? And it's one of the things we see in our data, which is highly engaged workplaces require people to believe that their leaders care about them as people, Mm. not just as resources or units or, or ways of achieving a business outcome. So for me, that's what it is. Do you consider more than just their capability to achieve what the work is required? Do you care about them as a human? It's, it's, it's such a circular thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we at uh, We Care Three Six Five, you know, and and this this podcast believe that uh, a caring CEO champions both the culture of care and the culture of high performance. And uh, Culture Amp has certainly been a high performing organisation. So how do you juggle those two things eternally? We juggle them eternally. Um, I think there's two pieces. So the first piece is that we say up front that we think it matters. We want to be a place, um, you know, our mission at Coltramp is to create a better world of work. And we we have two drivers for that. One is we know that that's what leads to better organizations and better outcomes. So our customers care. But secondly, for better or for work, work is increasingly the way we create identity in our lives. Mm. And so at the individual level, there's almost a moral imperative there where 
the world of work has to be increasingly meaningful and supportive for individuals if we're going to have people that can um, you know, have constructive lives. And so that's very much the mission we signed up for. We want to help on both those fronts. I interviewed previously a guy called Bob Chapman. He wrote the book, Everybody Matters. And, um, you know, he's had a very su- successful career growing his company, Barry Weimeller. And uh, he also really believes in care and believes that if you do that in the workplace, it flows through to the home life. And if people have a good day at work, it, uh, you know, helps to set up a good a good day at home when you get home. And, of course, those boundaries have been really um, melded with the whole COVID and the hybrid working and all that sort of stuff. But it, it is interesting, isn't it? He, he even tentatively thought about trying to reduce the divorce rate of his employees. And I, I just love the way people view that as, um, you know, it just doesn't apply to work. It flows on to our whole life. If I can ask, what's your working definition of care in the work context? It's very, very similar to what you've just outlined, Didier. It, it, it leads to um, caring for customers, caring for employees and caring for suppliers. And I think, and and this is something that uh, Bob Chapman talked about, is that, you know, he first thought that you show your care by talking. <laughs> and uh, he now believes and that it's really about empathetic listening, that uh, really listening so people feel understood is how we really care. And I think he's I think he's right with that. Mm. Uh, when people feel understood, I think uh, there's a much greater chance that they will engage and and uh, you know agree with how we're going to move forward and what the action is, sort of thing. Mm. Mm, I love that. You also have been very successful since the start of uh, Culture Amp, and you now have. 6,000 organisations around the world that you monitor and about 25 million employees. Does it feel surreal that you've reached that sort of number? Well, thankfully, it's uh, on behalf of our customers we, we we listen to in the context of your caring, you know, tens of millions of people depending on how you cut it. Thankfully, I don't have 25 million employees. Um, that would be quite uh, quite an effort. Sometimes I look at it and go, wow, this is all the things I set out that I wanted to do. But honestly, most of the time, uh, it feels like we're just scratching the surface and, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed we haven't been able to make more progress and I look forward to what we can do built upon what we already have because the big shift I've seen is, you know, 10 years ago when I started this, people didn't actually believe in the core concept. They went, that's a nice idea, the idea that, you know, people need an employee experience platform or that this is integral to running a successful company was a little bit out there. That's much less so now. So everybody's like, yeah, actually, I do have to care about my people. But I think we're still very much at the early days of actually doing that and doing it in a way that we can look at and go, look what we did and and see how the effect that it had on the business. So um, for all the progress and all the success we've had so far, I'd still say we're in the first innings. (laughs) How do you, um, you know, think that the pandemic and the change in working style has affected how we, you know, create culture and and have a a culture-first mindset? Oh, what a great question. I think on the one hand, it doubled down on the things that people were seeing that they needed to respond to, and there's two things that really played it. One is the idea that people matter. Uh, You know, suddenly everybody was thrust into this crazy environment where they had to figure out how to, you know, go into the unknown with their team. And there were very few people 
through COVID that were going, ah, cool, this has proven what I always thought, that people don't matter. <laughs> this is everybody going, I've always known it, but now I feel it in a way that I've never felt it before. So that was the first thing. Mm. The second thing was, and we're still feeling the effects of this, mental well-being has been a challenge forever. Mm. But for a very long period of time, it was con- sort of considered off out of scope for, for work. And, you know, people would go, I hope nobody in my company has a mental illness. And I think pre-COVID, we were just starting to get to that point where organizations were realizing, actually, we have a role to play in this. All of us will have people working with us that are suffering at some level or another, and how we choose to show up at work can affect that. COVID, like many things, like working from home, like the use of technology, just put the foot flat on the accelerator and took us to a whole new place. Yeah. So that was one of the big challenges that every organization was suddenly dealing with huge amounts of trauma, huge amounts of challenge. Um, everybody has anxiety. Like, and I don't mean that to diminish it. I mean that to actually call out how important and how powerful it's been. Mm. So those things were strong lifts, if you will, in the desire to interact with it. On the other side, one of the things we've all seen is that because everybody scattered to the four winds, because everything was being done through Zoom and, and other ways, and because of all the stuff that was going on in the world or outside them, in many ways, many workplaces are much harder than they were before. Mm. There's many less norms that you're used to. You're not seeing people in person. Um, the you know the cancel wars and all this stuff that's going on in the world around us are all playing out in organisations too. So we're actually seeing a very difficult time for people trying to build culture at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to see some of the research that has come out and I've followed quite a bit of uh, your research, but there was something from uh, a report called Return on Action by Atlassian and PwC that showed that mental health is now the number one societal issue that employees care about. Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, you, you can see in the WHO data that it's, I think, the third most expensive disease burden in the world anyway, um, and by some measures, the number one. But I, I definitely see in the last couple of years, organisations have really realised that we can't just stick our head in the sand and say it's not a, it's not a work problem. Like, it, it is, because the way we're working is affecting it, and also if we're going to make progress you can't just ignore the working world. Like that's actually where we have to start. So I think it's a worthy wake up, but it also means that we're now asking and demanding so much more. Like the role of the manager just got really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. You're now expected to be able to navigate anxiety issues. You, you know, navigate all the stuff that's going on in people's lives. And that's hard for trained clinicians, (laughs) let alone people that are also trying to manage. So um, yeah, this is, I think the question of our time. Yeah, and uh, it's really interesting. You know, I had my own really bad struggles with uh, depression. I I was a um, vice president with Carney, the global consulting company, and then went through a really profound episode of of depression, which lasted for five years. Mm. And um, I really learnt from my psychiatrist this concept of a moodometer, Mm -hmm. you know, where zero, you just feel hopeless, can't get out of bed, 10, you're firing on all cylinders. And I find that, um, you know, talking about something like that where you have the green zone, amber zone, red zone really helps to reduce stigma. And uh, one of the things that we just did was with um, uh, an HR recruitment company called The Next Step, we we measured the mood of 
individuals, teams and organisations. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But one of the things that um, I thought was still very interesting was that although 67% of people felt that their manager cared about them, only 55% said they would feel comfortable to discuss their own mental health issue with their manager. What are your thoughts around that? And how do you think that number could be improved? Mm. I mean, you called out the word stigma, and I think that's a big part of the work to be done is removing some of the stigma and trying to avoid the labels on some of these things too. And I think one of the learnings from positive psychology too is it's not just about the you know treatment of a, of a diagnosable condition. It's something that affects all of us to a greater or lesser degree at different times. And I think that's pivotal in understanding that it's not like there might be a few people in your organization that are depressed. How might you treat them? But everyone in the organization is going to be going up and down. Some of them will probably be fine without any support, but some people will need support and then may surprise you who those people are. And so removing that stigma, I think, is key. On the other side, the thing that I think is a real challenge for organizations is you want to create that safe space. You want to create that more openness, but you also want to recognize that there does need to be boundaries. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Brene Brown talks has a great line where she said, vulnerability without boundaries is actually manipulation. And so how do we teach people to do this safely? How do we help people realize that, you know, I might be there wanting to help you, but if you're suffering anxiety, I might be doing more harm than good. Mm. So how do I help you go to someone who can help you? And how do I know the difference? Yeah. And I think that's where we're starting to, you know, the mental health first aid and other things are useful because they're increasing that sophistication. But we have to be careful that we don't sort of say, you know, it's the manager's job to make sure that your mental well-being is good because managers can't do that. They don't have the skills. They don't have the training. Um, we're setting them up for failure if we try and make them do that. Yeah, I was involved with um, helping Gavin Larkin to start Are You OK? back in 2009. Mm-hmm. And it is wonderful to see how it's become much more um, part of our lives, not just in work, but in schools and in the community mm-hmm. areas. And, uh, you know, just increasing the confidence to have that conversation And as you say, you know, it's not your job to be a therapist. It's your job to show the person they feel that they're cared for and that you really are listening and really want to understand, but then to encourage them to find the help that they need, the experts that they need. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that um, getting more and more sophistication around that, being able to give them one of the things that we have in the uh, the WeCare 365 e-learning programs is having really practical tools like how to find a mental health savvy GP, mm-hmm. how to prepare for a mental health discussion. And again, these are they're quite layman things, but there's just some simple principles to follow that can really help with that. And um, I know your your wife is a psychologist, I think, is that, mm-hmm. is that correct? And, um, yes. and uh, you know, we we just really need that human connection, don't we? It's uh, you know that sense of belonging is fundamental. It's a fundamental human need. Mm. But I think the are you okay was so powerful in that it tapped into, as you say, that sense of community. It wasn't trying to form get everyone to be a therapist, but it was reminding people, particularly in this modern world, how lonely mm. a lot of us are, mm. particularly at that moment of need, mm. um, and. 
that was something that uh, was was taken up with great fervor at, at Coltramp, and and it's something that we engage in quite a lot. And one of the people at Coltramp, Damon Klotz, um, in his earlier life, he'd actually started a um, toughen the f up um, <laughs> thing, yeah. but it was actually really about trying to get men to realize that it's not just about you know toughening your way through it. But that you know, reaching a hand out when someone's struggling and and allowing them to share that is such a powerful thing. I've observed anecdotally, and I'm sure you would have looked at this on a much more rigorous basis scientifically. But it seems that um, it's been a very very tough period for managers and leaders. You know, trying to create the right environment, trying to help people feel engaged, and I think it's at times you know managers or leaders have run down their own mental health. It, have you seen any um, evidence around that in terms of your data? Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Mm. It's been a, a brutal time, um, particularly for, as you call out, you know, leaders that have people responsibility, and also the people professionals like the HR leaders. Mm. Um, and I've seen this both in our data and also um, anecdotally in talking to people leaders, like the number of great chief people officers or heads of people that are actually just leaving the industry. They're like, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. I can't keep taking every, every blow. And, you know, the last three years have been such a crucible because it's not just been COVID, the worldwide pandemic. There's also been uh, extraordinary reckoning on the race relations side. Mm. There's been, you know, gender issues brought to the forefront. There's been climate issues. There's been, uh, you know, war, like acts of terrorism, like there's just anything, any one of those things, if you go back to the idea of like a life stress stress inventory and you sort of like any one of those would take most people out and you've had 10 of them. So yeah, short of it is it's been a brutal time for leaders and people are, are struggling. What do you think is the way forward for leaders and teams to get supported, feel they're part of something what practical steps would you advise leaders who are really struggling to to move forward? I mean, I think the one thing is to recognise there's no one answer. There's no mythically wonderful people leader that is actually really good at all of these things. What I would suggest as practical things is the good thing is there are now some really great things that we can draw inspiration from. So whether it's you know someone like Brene Brown helping us understand why vulnerability is not weakness, but strength. You know, that's a really powerful idea in starting to transform not just culture, but also how we as individuals choose to lead. And so I think we can learn from from, from people like that. Um, I also think that you called it out earlier, there's a lot of practical stuff where people are starting to lean into what are the tools that are available to you? And this is something that my wife, Greta Bradman, sort of introduced me to is the old idea of psychology was, come into my room, tell me what's wrong with you, and I'll diagnose you and give you a fix. And the more modern version is everyone's dealing with something. You're not broken. Here's my bag of tricks. Let's go through the bag and find something that works for you, and I'll teach you how to use it so that you can live a better life. And I think so the first thing is for people to take that mental model. Mm. You're not broken. You're not going to find a fix. You're going to learn all this stuff we've learned in the last 10, 20 years, which of those are workable, which of those are useful, which of those might help you manage the stress, which of those might help you navigate the situations you're in. And once again, like you called out earlier, 
you can't do it alone. You want to find other people that are also trying to go on this journey and learn from each other because the only thing that you know is there'll be times where it will feel too hard yeah. and you need somebody else to sit down and go, yep, I'm there too, but there's no way out except forward. <laughs> I read previously that um, Scott Farquhar, the co-founder of Atlassian, really helped you have a better approach to challenges. Can you just explain what that was about and, and why it was so helpful? I'm trying to remember which one of his pieces of advice it was. Uh, he has definitely been <laughs> extremely helpful to me in, in many different situations. I think one of the, the things that we're on record talking about was actually just early on in the company when we were trying to figure out whether we should go for it. Like we built this good thing, but which we really go for it. And he sort of stepped back and walked me through some situations in his life where he'd been offered similar choices and what happened when he chose A and what happened when he chose B. And so I think it was one of those examples of we can keep falling into these traps of thinking that we're unique and that the choice in front of us is a choice that no one's ever had to face before. Mm. And there's just so much power from hearing somebody else, not because you're going to do it the way they did it necessarily, but it, it normalizes and makes you, oh, okay, cool. This is, this is what I should consider. And then it gives you the confidence and the courage to jump forward. You know, one of the lines that's worked with me through everything is this idea of what matters, particularly in a startup, is not how many people don't believe in you because there are legions, but it's how many people do. Mm. And so mentally, we're just like 100 people think I'm crazy, therefore I'm crazy. Like, it doesn't matter if 100 people think you're crazy or 1,000 people think you're crazy. Maybe crazy is a bad choice of word, but if two or three people go, no, I see what you're doing, I believe in you, that's enough. That's all you need to focus on. And so I think it's that idea that's, that's really helped drive me through stuff is I don't need everybody to tell me what I'm doing is a good idea. <laughs> We need to be challenged. As much as I might want that to be the case. <laughs> uh, and uh, I know that you've really strived to have a more inclusive organisation. Mm. Why do you think that's so important? And what are the steps that you've taken which has really helped to move in the right direction? For me, that's been an education. Once again, it was my wife, Greta, who introduced me to the idea of compound privilege and a realization that hopefully, and I believe so, that I'm here in this role as the CEO of this company because I'm smart and I'm clever and, and I work hard and all of those things. Mm. But I also have to accept that there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of people that could have been in this same situation that had all those same attributes, but never had that opportunity because every step of the way, they weren't given that hand. You know, I grew up with relatively cheap education, universal healthcare. My parents had postgraduate qualifications. I had stable upbringing. You know, I was white. I was male. Mm -hmm. I was given everything the world could be, could provide. And so, yeah, great. I was successful, but not because of me. <laughs> and so that's a humbling thing to realize. And I spoke to a journalist and she said to me something which really stuck with me, where she said, the hallmark of privilege is you can't see it when you have it. Yeah. And so as I started to appreciate it, I made a point to myself of going, Part of my job is to call out the privilege that's got me here, to identify it as privilege, mm. and then to seek opportunities to make choices that don't necessarily unwind that, but look to reduce the compound burden of that privilege yeah. on others. Yeah, And that's work that will never finish. And so part of it was just appreciation of that. And that's why we do it, because like, if, if we with privilege aren't looking to unwind that privilege, it is never going to change. Mm. In terms of what we've done about it, 
firstly, that act, I, I was a little um, almost concerned when I first got up on stage and said that, because I was kind of like a little bit like, do people even really care? Do they want to hear me say this? Like, is it going to feel disingenuous? Oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I did. And it was great because the feedback that I got was from a lot of people going, thank you. You know, thank you for calling out that privilege and recognizing that situation because it makes it easier for us to move forward. So my first step was just to continue to do that. Yeah. Call it out. Yeah. And it's amazing now I find myself in conversations and then I hear somebody saying something like, look, this is all ridiculous. Surely if we're hiring somebody, it should just be about who the best candidate is. Mm. And I'm like, I understand why you have that view. But you need to step back and look at the system that produced those people. Yeah. If we don't take a broader view than this, if we don't think about how we unwind that privilege, nothing's ever going to change. And we have to change it. So one's calling out the privilege. Two, internally, you just have to be super intentional. Mm. You have to sit down and say, we're never going to hire anybody who isn't amazing. Yeah. Like the bar is up here. Yeah. You're not hiring saying, oh, this is a diversity hire or whatever. You're hiring a great person. But the world is full of great people. And how hard are you going to go looking for somebody who's not only great, but is also bringing something you don't have? And it, it's not just gender. It's not just race. It's how are you forcing yourself to think outside the box? And like I said earlier, it's a very humbling process. Like I I wrote a list and I, I'd, I'd recommend everyone do this. I wrote a list and said, what are the 50 books that have influenced me? I love reading. What are the 50 books that have influenced my thinking in work? So I wrote out this whole list. Then I looked at it and I went, in this, first of all, how many of them are men and how many are women? Mm. And what was fascinating is there was only like seven women on that list. Now, three of the top five books were women, but still. <laughs> really like, and then I asked, well, where are they all from? Large parts of the world where I haven't read anything from those people. Mm. And some of that is the compound privilege that most management education came out of Western, the Western world, particularly the U.S., but you're going to challenge yourself. So now I go looking and go, how do I, you know, how do I force myself to read new things? And like one of the books that really changed my thinking in the last year was um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibrahim Kendi. And it it really challenged my thinking on a whole bunch of things. So you've got to open up your brain, accept the humbling lessons you're going to learn and realize that it's a journey you'll never finish. Yeah. And what was the, what was the key point that came out of that that you took away? He does a really good job of getting you to change your thinking from, you know, are you racist or are you anti-racist? And he poses the idea that, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a good enough job in, in, in two lines, but I'll try. He poses the idea that rather than thinking of it as being an inherent trait that you are racist or anti-racist, you look at it as a, as a measure of, of the choices you're making. So every choice you make, is that increasing or decreasing systemic oppression are the choices you're doing perpetuating a model that is systemically uh, unfair mm. or is it unwinding that oppression and that compound privilege and so that lens kind of helped change the way i think about things yeah. and change how i choose to do things in certain situations because i'm actually getting out of the but i'm a good person you know i don't i don't i'm not racist i treat everyone the same mm. fine but the choices you made are they unwinding the system that's creating all of this inequity or not? Mm. If they're not, they're not anti-racist yeah. and you can't call yourself one. And so it was a very provocative and, and challenging book to read. Just looking at gender, it's quite well documented that, you know, if men have six out of ten qualities for a job and women have six out of ten qualities, the, the guys will just jump in there and the women will say, well, actually, I don't have four. 
how how do you address that in an interview situation? Like I, I was a recruiter and headhunter for about 15 years and I just had this sort of back of the mind thing that, uh, you know, you wind up women's, <laughs> what they say, by 25% and you cut back men by 25%. Have you mm-hmm. looked at other ways to address that sort of uh, different approach to whether someone's ready for a role? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing and it's something that, We actually just in all of our job ads just actually call that out. So we specifically say in the job ad, data shows that a certain group of people, predominantly more true for women than for men, but it's not just on gender lines, Mm. will only apply if they tick all the boxes and others will apply if they tick three. And we make a point of saying, even if you don't tick all the boxes, still apply because we'd love to talk to you. And what's been fascinating is just that single act of, of adding those two lines to our job ads has significantly changed the people that we get to interview. And they will say to us, I literally was not going to apply. And then I read that two line and went, you know what? You're right. I am going to apply. So it's a very little thing, but it's made a massive difference to the people that then we get the opportunity to speak to. And then you basically have to educate your hiring managers. Mm -hmm. And once again, say our goal here is not to find the safest bet that ticks all the boxes. Our goal here is to find the person who has the potential to be what we need them to be. Yeah. And we need to go looking for it. Yeah. And so it's it's an imprecise science, but it's just opening yourself up to that possibility and recognizing that people don't. There's um, a really great guy, Thomas Prezaro Chuzik, who wrote a book. And the core of his book was we promote confidence rather than competence, which is predominantly in men. And so the title of his book was Why Do We Keep Promoting Incompetent Men? <laughs> and he said it's because we, we, we overweight confidence. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist, and this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. It's really interesting you're just talking about those, you know, two things you added to an ad which changed the people that came forward. And I've heard another version of that. I, I interviewed previously Susan Metcalf, who's the chief executive of Chief Executive Women, so all the, you know, senior women around the place. And she mentioned a website, and I can't remember it, which enabled you to put in a role that you had written up a certain way. It's called Text.io. Yeah, yeah. I thought... Isn't that amazing, you know, that uh, you can make it? And, and and surely that could be applied to other biases as well. My um, wife is a professor in epidemiology and she has, you know, about 120 researchers working to her. And there's some real, you know, cognitive diversity there, people that are amazing data wizards, but they may not be 
great in conventional communication and just realizing that the unique contribution people make doesn't mean that they're going to be, you know, natural communicators or, or work standard hours. Often they can work very differently. Yeah. I mean, that idea of neurodiversity is, is definitely an important part of, of, of diversity work now. And I think tools like Text.io are great because they basically hold up a mirror mm. and they allow you to look at it and go, if you write the ad this way, this is how it's likely to be perceived. You may be fine with that. Or you may go, I had no idea. I could just change that one word and this will land better for a new group. And actually, that's the group I'm going for. Yeah, We're seeing a lot of that stuff happen. And, and even um, we're seeing in the, in the tech space, uh, what, uh, a company here in Australia, one of our customers, they were reflecting on the fact they didn't have enough women in engineering. And somebody made the really good observation was like, it's because all of our roles are full time. If we could have part-time roles, we'd have access to a different part of the workforce that happens to have more women in it than, than the other one. And so that, once again, it was not an easy thing to do, but once they opened themselves up to that opportunity, they were significantly able to change the gender mix of their workforce. Yeah. I know you have a big team of um, people scientists. What's What have they added to the way you run the business? I would say it's even more than adding um, their foundational. So our first employee was Dr. Jason McPherson. He was our people scientist and he brought all of that. And since that time, that team has grown and grown. And so they're at the heart of everything. They're at the heart of how we build our product. They're at the heart of how we work with our customers. They're at the heart of where we're trying to take the world. So our, our mission to create a better world of work is really how do we substantially change the way organizations are run, drawing upon modern IO psychology. That's what we're trying to do. And so people scientists are you know, at the heart of what that looks like. What does the research tell us and how do we take that research and put it into tools that are available to everyone? Mm. And the magic that they do at CultureAmp is it's not that we don't know what to do. It's not that we don't have lots of research telling us how to build more successful organizations. It's that it's not accessible to most people. It's not available. It's not being delivered in daily, daily interactions. So people scientists are our navigators for that. So absolutely foundational to everything that CultureAmp is. What do you think are important new roles that are going to evolve out of the next sort of two to five years, roles that we may not have now, but um, you see as will be foundational just looking at the research and how things are evolving? I think as an entrepreneur, I'm always a little bit of a fluid thinker in terms of roles. Like I don't tend to think of, you know, that, that, that. I, I tend to think a lot more about what are the skills that and, and capabilities that need and experiences that need to be brought to bear? And once again, I think that's where this is going to come from. Mm. There'll always be specialization, but I think the value uh, increasingly is that ability to tap things that have historically not been connected. So we want storytellers who are data scientists. We want you know brand people that are really analytical. We want, you know, engineers that think like designers. And so where I see these roles coming from, they come from the, you know, the cross-collaboration of practices that have not collaborated enough <laughs> and people that can sit across those and do that. I mean, at its core, we're drowning in data. So I think increasingly roles that know how to apply data to different problems inside organizations I mean, you think about the last three years and, and you said your partner was in epidemiology. 
Most people couldn't even spell epidemiology. Through. <laughs> um, and now everyone's an armchair epidemiologist. <laughs> <laughs> when we, when, uh, I'm in my uh, second marriage now, and um, when we first started going out, Karen would introduce herself as an epidemiologist. Say, you can't say that. No one has the first clue what about. They think it's a skin doctor. Yeah. But, but now uh, they're like, oh, what's going to happen here? And uh, just looking now at uh, gender with talked about some of the things that uh, have held women back, but um, men are responsible for 75% of suicides. Yeah. Why, and I know this isn't your specialist area, but I'm just interested in any observations you might have. Why do you think it is that way and and what could be done to address it in your view? Well, I'm, I'm definitely out of my uh, area of expertise on this. I, I'm, I'm very high level familiar with some of the research, but there's a lot more research that I'm not familiar with. So um, I'm not going to profess to know why that is the case. I do think there is a this idea going back to the thing that that Damon worked on. There is a social script or a social model that as men you don't express your feelings, and it's all about being not you don't you can't be overwhelmed, you can't be vulnerable. And I don't think that it's possible to navigate the real tribulations that the world throws at you without getting in touch with your feelings. Mm. And so to the extent that men are less capable of processing that, or actually that's wrong, they're not less capable, they're taught to be less willing, <laughs> um, that is a serious challenge. So I, I do think there is a, a need for us to get away from unhelpful ideas on how to handle the challenges that get thrown at us. I mean, it sounds like an area you would be more uh, qualified to provide feedback. Uh, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, I, I think, and this really, you know, is congruent with what you just said. I, I think men have been socialised to be problem solvers and, uh, you know, they, and I know when I went through my really, really difficult times, you know, I think subconsciously I thought, well, I should be able to sort this out myself. You know, I should be able to solve it. And and uh, if if it didn't change, it wasn't looking good. There's just a really greater sense of uh, hopelessness. Mm. And uh, and so when men can talk about their struggles or the things that are stressing them, it's the old concept of a problem shared as a problem halved. And, uh, you know, I, I had a really, really bad breakdown which lasted for five years. And as I emerged from it, I was very, very conscious of um, building up uh, friendships with other men where I could have those conversations about vulnerability and worries and that sort of thing. And it's a lovely, lovely situation to be in. And, and you know, I'm, I, I, because of my background, I'm, I will have vulnerability to mental illness. But, uh, you know, I can say to people, I am struggling at the moment, if you want to help, ask me to go for a walk. <laughs> and uh, you get outside and you're walking in fresh air and and you can also talk properly. And, but you also then take on the, the responsibility and the obligation to listen to them when they're going through a tough time as well. And uh, I read yesterday a story of um, a guy who wrote it. He'd been in the men's group for 36 years with this same group of uh, six six men and, you know, they've been through divorces and job losses and all that sort of thing and they just talked about it as being a really fundamental part of um, getting forward. And I, I was actually 
just caught up this morning with my nephew. He's an exercise physiologist and he's, uh, I think, 30, but he, he told me I've got into a men's group. Um, and I thought, how fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's not just all about talking about sport, it's talking about the real stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hopefully we do see an, a, a society evolve where it becomes easier for men to speak about their real, their real concerns and their real problems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I was exposed to it when I was, uh, you know, just coming out of university. My dad's a psychologist as well, right. and uh, I had a good friend of mine at university that uh, also suffered severe depression, um, largely brought about through drug use, and got to the point where he ended up taking his own life. And as I went through that journey with him, to your point about being problem solvers, I remember just feeling helpless because, like, I I just wanted to solve it, help, or do something. And I remember my dad saying to me, he's like, there's nothing you can do. Like, you may or may not make it through. All you can do is be his friend. And, you know, that was a very humbling experience to go through too because, yeah, up until that point, you know, I hadn't seen a problem I didn't want to try and solve. (laughs) Here I was faced with something where this was not something to be solved. This was just something to be shared. And, uh, yeah, and and, and it had that tragic ending too. So um, it's... There's more of that. I think as you get older, the world just gets more complex. (laughs) (laughs) Makes less sense. (laughs) Yeah. Our theme for Are You Okay this year is um, Ask Are You Okay, No Qualifications Needed. Mm -hmm. And it came from research which we did, which showed that 40% of people believe that a therapist is much better at asking that question uh, or dealing with someone. And through my own first-hand experience, I just know that's not the case, you know, because mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a subtle difference. You pay a therapist. Mm-hmm. They have to, yeah. you know, <laughs> listen to you. But as someone that you're not paying and reaches out and offers care and support in an unconditional way, that counts for so much. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, it's one of our great wishes. When we started Are You Okay?, one of the biggest reasons pe- people didn't ask is because they were concerned they couldn't help or wouldn't know how to assist. Mm. But just showing that you care, that you support, makes a massive, massive difference. It uh, it really does. Yeah, I think that's so true and, and something we keep forgetting. Mm. Before Coltramp, uh, you worked with Rising Sun Productions. Can you just explain to our listeners what, what that was about and, and your role there? Yeah, so Rising Sun Pictures was a Hollywood visual effects company. Well, that's what it became. When I joined it, uh, I was like employee number five or six. Uh, It was a a small post-production company that worked on TV commercials and CD-ROMs and multimedia. And then uh, as the company grew, I grew with it, and we ended up becoming a film specialist. And Rising Sun Pictures is now one of the top 10 or 15 visual effects companies in the world. And uh, I had the pleasure of... 13 years in film, and I started as a software engineer, worked as an artist, and ended as the CEO. And we brought stories to life. You know, we did, it was all computer-generated imagery. We worked on Superman, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Um, Since I left to found Coltramp, they've gone on to work on, you know, many of the Marvel movies, you know, all these amazing things, Game of Thrones and all of that sort of stuff. And so that was, you know, an incredible experience. privilege to get the chance to do that and to do it from Adelaide, actually. <laughs> so we had an office in Adelaide and an office in Sydney, and we worked for, you know, London and LA. And um, so much of what I do today, I, I, 
I, I realize is informed heavily by what I learned about storytelling in those years. How can storytelling be used to change cultures? I think storytelling is the only tool you have to change cultures. <laughs> um, you know, it's the power. In fact, in many ways, I've learned that more working with companies on culture than I have making making movies because mm-hmm. you realize that with all the data in the world, you know, I can come and bring all this data and show it to you and you can nod your head and say, oh, yeah, okay, I think we should do this or we can do that. But there's no will to change. There's no true understanding of the transformation required. Whereas when we can come and we can tell a story, we can make that real for people. We can make that something that makes them want to to move. And so, you know, that can be used for evil as well as for good. But storytelling is such a powerful tool for getting people to want to act and to want to change. And I would say in many ways, it's the only tool. Um, it's it's the way that we do it. And I uh, we talked before about stigma. And um, I... I... 100% believe what you say. It, it is about people sharing their stories. You know, if they've been through something really tough and they can share what they did, how they felt, but how they came through it, it has a huge impact in terms of making it okay to speak about it. And uh, I obviously speak about my story a lot, um, you know, when I, when I do keynote presentations and that sort of thing. And it's just amazing how many people come up and say, well, let me tell you about this, you know, and uh, whether it's for them or someone close to them. And uh, I really, really believe that um, it's, it's fundamental. And when we talk about launching an initiative to, to make a more friendly, mentally healthy workplace, if you can engage um, employees to tell their story, and they have to be, it has to be at the right stage of their recovery to do that. Mm. You know, some people want to do it, but it's just too new and too fresh. But I remember once that um, I did some work with uh, NAB in their internal consulting area. And, uh, you know, I shared my story. And then we previously agreed this. There was a, um, a guy there who had worked there for 15 years, but he talked about something 13 years ago when he basically just couldn't work anymore, had to move away, and he got into um, exercise <laughs> and he ended up doing two Hawaiian triathlons, you know, so wow. just, just unbelievable. But people didn't know that part of him. A lot of, the, you know, didn't know mm-hmm. that background. And once he told that story, people were able to then talk about, you know, some of the things and struggles they were having, not sleeping properly and all this sort of thing. And... Uh, and so, yeah, providing guidance on um, getting employees to tell stories about their tough times and how they came through it really does help to bring down that stigma, it really does. Mm. And I think that's the power of story is that when you hear a story that's told well, mm. it connects you to your own experience and it connects you to that shared experience. And I remember being in a in a forum actually here in Melbourne and there was a person talking about uh how you build websites for people that are visually impaired. And it was fascinating. It was such a great presentation. And then he did something at the end that was really interesting where he said, how many of you in the room, there's about 50 of us in the room, how many of you in the room know someone relatively close to you that is severely visually impaired that the sort of work that we're doing affects? And about a third of the room put their hand up. And he wow. said, yeah, that's why we do this. And then he said, and he almost, he did the classic, like when he said, oh, one more thing. How many of you... <laughs> know someone close to you that is severely impaired by mental illness. Every person in the room put their hand up. Mm. 
And he's like, and yet we do all this work for this, not to build it, we have to, but we really don't have any way of trying to help over here. <laughs> and it was yeah. a really powerful reflection to me of the universality of this challenge uh, and how much more work there is to be done. And that's something I, you know, usually do when I'm presenting as well. And it's the same thing, you know, 95% of hands go up. And, and that I say, well, you know, there'll be 25% in this room that has personal experience, their first-hand experience. When you're doing it, you feel so alone, don't you? And mm-hmm. for the rest of you, you know, you support one or know someone that's going through that. And even when you're doing that, you think you're so alone as well because, uh, you know, no one talks about it a lot. And uh, just by recognising how broad that impact is, is, uh, you know, so so important for having the, the more caring and, um, and supportive cultures that really um, can make a big, big difference like that. I read <laughs> about a great lesson that um, you got and it was it was from Mark at, uh, at Rising Sun, and it was around a you producing a piece of work for a director, which didn't meet expectations, and that director called Mark. It was Tony. Oh, Tony. Sorry. Could you just just tell us about what you learned from that? Yeah. If I, if my mind's going to the right situation. Um, this was a, a film that we were working on. I was working on a shot. I was the artist on the shot at the time. It was a big shot in this particular film. Uh, we, we were doing the final version of it and we'd sent it across and there was a problem and the director called and Tony was sitting next to me and he let loose. Like he was tearing into the shot, into the company, into everything. It was like, how could you have done this? You blah, 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 blah. You know, just fully went for it. And Tony, I, I could hear it. <laughs> and Tony just sat there and he just went, okay, like, let me understand what the problem is. Uh, you know, we will solve it. Like, basically, he had to get on a plane to take this film to uh, film shows. Like, Tony's like, working out how quickly can we get there? Can we get a tape? We'll get another version of it. And then he like he put the phone down. And he turned to me and he went, "Okay, this is the problem. We've got to fix it." And we went through and we fixed it. And the thing that stuck with me. So first of all, when all was said and done, the problem actually wasn't ours. There was an issue that had happened somewhere else that we were able to figure out. But what I learned from that was that everything in that would have been for him to get defensive, to deflect that to me, to turn around and go, "What have you done?" But in that moment, he just went fully into, "Okay." this is where we are. Let's figure out what we can do. We're all going to do this together. And not once did his confidence in me waver. Not once did he sit down and go, what have you done? He probably didn't even think much of it at the time. But, you know, the confidence that gives you in yourself, you're like, all right, cool. I know that you've got my back at the worst. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm doing the same for you. And so that's something that I've always reflected on too. It's uh, There's always... Against some of the stuff we said earlier, I haven't sat that, seen that many problems that at the end of the day, with enough time and energy, you can't get past. Mm. And so deflection and blame and all of these things just get in the way. Yeah. One of the things I do in my keynote is um, ask people to reflect on a great team they've been in and uh, think about it, what made it different, all that sort of stuff, and then use Menti to get people to vote on, you know, what are the main things. And there's always the top three came up, and one of them is we had each other's back, 
we cared about each other and we enjoyed ourselves. You know, they're mm-hmm. always the top three and there's such, there's nothing technical there, is it? It's all about, you know, soft skills, so-called soft skills, but they're just um, just really, really, you know, foundational mm-hmm. to building great teams and great organisations. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Didier. I feel we could speak for another hour, but <laughs> we're getting to the to the end. But uh, I'd just be interested in your thoughts about knowing what you know now through what you learned at Rising Sun and also Coltrane. If you could speak to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give that 20, 20-year-old self? I think it's, it's I, I sort of reflect on this question from time to time. In some ways, you don't want to rob anyone of the, the 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 journey and the experiences because somebody telling you to do something is not the same as experiencing it. The thing that I've had to learn, particularly as a CEO, is to be able to look at things over longer timeframes and to ask myself, and then what? So there will be a situation that will come up and I might feel that I can contribute to that situation in a positive way. And let's say I do. Then what? Like then, w- where does it go, and who picks that up, and and what am I going to do? And I I've, I've realised over the over the long run that there are situations where two or three times I'll reach in and say I can help here, I'm going to help here, but then what? <laughs> mm. And in fact, mm. you do that ten times, and you end up with ten things that haven't haven't gone anywhere. And so, in in many ways, my advice would be be judicious. Think not just about what's in front of you, but then what that entails and swing less often. Swing harder and swing less often. Yeah, I love that. I don't think I've learned the lesson yet, though. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a journey. It's always a journey. <laughs> if I was to say back to my 20-year-old self, don't let those stories that you tell yourself about what you need to do and what you should be doing frame the way you think about uh, children. And what I mean by that is like, when we had our first child, I was CEO, you know, I just worked through it. Mm. You know, I wasn't there, not in the way that I, I, I could have or should have been. Um, and I don't think, you know, we were fortunate and we had m- many things that went really well. So I don't think it was necessarily a challenge for, for the children, but certainly for, for Greta, it was like, mm. I put my career ahead of hers and honestly, at the time, I don't think I even really thought about the fact that I was doing that. And so that advice would be think much more deeply about that and do it differently. Yeah. And I share that same uh, same belief, you know, wishing I had done things a bit differently. But, um, you know, you live and learn, don't you? Yeah. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure catching up today, Didier, and, uh, you know, you truly do embody the uh, the caring CEO, where you're striving for both a culture of care and and high performance, and you know it's all, it's a journey, and I love uh, how you recognise that we're never quite there, but it is about intention. It's about intention and moving in the right direction. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I look forward to listening to it and your other guests. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. 
If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.